Welcome, welcome to the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie Podcast. This is the podcast where we dissect, analyze, investigate, fall in love with the power of storytelling and learn how to harness that power to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gorev. And I'm Kevin. Kevin, 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 have you heard about Google's smear campaign against Apple to try to get them to fix iMessage? Well, what's wrong with iMessage? So essentially, Google and Android have started, uh, for those who don't know, Android is owned by Google. It's one of the most successful uh, acquisitions of all time. Google has started um, this campaign called get the message and i've been seeing ads for this too and i've heard news people talk about it it's amazing it's basically a smear shame campaign that google is currently doing through advertisements through this whole website they set up on android basically laying out all the reasons why apple should get rid of iMessage and move everything to sms and there's there's all these articles that google wrote and there's all these videos and it's uh, the headline of the website is, is it's time for Apple to fix texting and they lay out this whole case that texting is broken and it's all essentially all these technical reasons and Wi-Fi is annoying and uh, security all these reasons that Google essentially lays out of why iMessage makes the experience worse for everyone involved and why Apple should get rid of iMessage and everyone should go to the basic level of texting and Apple just does not care, and it's amazing. Um, and essentially, Google also—I don't know how much they—they they lay out a lot of technical reasons, but this is the uh, this is the crux of the situation. Google doesn't like the shame non-Apple users get for not having iMessage. I remember early in college, Kev, you remember. Everyone in the group, in our friend group, had Apple, had an Apple device, except for me. I was the only one on the Android. And I got so much, um, got so much shade about the green bubbles until I got an iPhone and everyone's like, yay, finally we can use iMessage. Do you remember? Okay, there were way more problems with that phone of okay. yours than just You the cannot messages. pivot from the core question. You think they can go down six rabbit holes? Well, we've only Focus. done that like 50 times, but I understand. What what's funny to me, what's funny to me is okay, so so Google pointed out this quote-unquote problem, but it's amazing. Do, do they have Google's a solution getting, to that? Their solution is to get rid of iMessage and just go to texting. Like you can text someone who doesn't have an iPhone on your iPhone, it just shows up green. It's Google, and it's funny cuz you don't see this often where a company goes out, a company as big as Google goes out and shames a company as big as Apple through advertisements, through setting up websites, through interviews. It's really funny. Usually with this stuff, there's a lot of boardroom conversations and a lot of stuff backdooring and stuff, a lot of deals being made. But it's really Google going out there, spending a ton of money just to shame Apple and say, hey, text, literally there's a link on the site to tweet it to Apple to get rid of iMessage. That's Google's whole stance. And it's like, there's all these technical reasons that everyone is saying. Apple is saying, oh, iMessage is easier. Google's saying, no, it's making it unfair and equitable, a lot of things. Essentially, it all comes down to storytelling though. Because I, I'll tell you, I text people without iPhones on my phone 
and I text people by message, honestly, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter to me either way. Um, who I text through iMessage or who I text through the green bubbles. But iMessage is one of the most ingenious ideas Apple has ever had because basically all iMessage does is it tells you who is and isn't in the club, who is and isn't an Apple user, who is and isn't cool. And uh, Apple purposely built things to make uh, iMessage seamless and easy and people who don't have Apple devices iMessage difficult. So like for example, if you're in a group and there's one person with an Android device, you can't do an iMessage group. And basically, that there's so much psychology and storytelling there because the story is, oh, that guy ruined it for everyone. And then there's this societal pressure and, and all these reasons, well now that guy has to get the Apple device so he can iMessage. It's, it's literally all about group storytelling. It's basically like, if you don't have iMessage, you're not cool. And it's amazing because it's not that different of a product. And, app, and that's what Google's pointing out. That's what Google's advertisement is. They're saying it's the same thing except for Apple has iMessage to shame people for not having iPhones. I definitely think it's interesting because if, we, if we're only thinking about the colors, why... Is there an argument for people liking the color blue over green? No, it's, there's it's no, kind of hard to tell. No, it it's it's not. It has nothing to do with like it, the colors could be inverse too. That's not the issue. Yeah. It's just the fact that blue right? means iMessage. It, it, the colors yeah. aren't. The, it's not color science. And then Google yeah. also lists a bunch of other reasons here. They say photos are blurry, videos are tiny. Uh, text message uh, are not sending over Wi-Fi. Um, but honestly, there's there's all these technical reasons Google's naming. But honestly, it's wholeheartedly the fact that Google is tired of, of Apple bullying people into getting iPhones because they don't have iMessage. Google is tired of making Android users feel less than because they can't iMessage. Anyone who's ever had an Android has known this feeling, has known the feeling of being the guy without iMessage, the guy to ruin the group and being pressured into, oh, I should get an Apple device so that doesn't happen. And again, again, Apple has no incentive to change this. Yes, Google's trying to make all the social pressure, but Apple's like, iMessage is working. It's getting people to sign up to use the Apple. It's getting people to get excited about being in the club. It's the story. It's all just storytelling. Because in the end, anyone who has an iPhone, honestly, in the end, it doesn't make a difference if I'm texting someone with iMessage or I'm texting someone with SMS. The experience is very similar, right? Um, but the blue sends a trigger to my brain, oh, this person has an iPhone. And Apple has built it in that those are the cool people. Um, but anyways, it's funny because this is so opposite of Apple's kind of... Apple, you know, with the 1984 commercial and with things like that, Apple is... Apple's brand was built in kind of this underdog, cool, creative type of stance. So Google framing them as like the bullies and like the big dog that is using their their network effects and their uh, strong branding as a way to force people on iPhone so they can be a part of the club. It's just it's it's an interesting departure and it's an interesting conversation about how Apple has matured, at least in North America. Anyways, um, that's a fun topic. Maybe we'll do a whole episode of it. But today's episode is not about that. Today's episode is the continuation of the amazing 
conversation we got to have with Dr. Cassie Holmes from UCLA Anderson, who is a happiness professor. And um, so this is part two of our conversation. We're going to talk more about time, happiness, and how all that relates to storytelling and the stories we tell ourselves. So let's get back into this conversation. We've talked a lot about uh, good ways to discern what are the activities that make us happy, that, that make us think is worthwhile, uh, that, you know, make us uh, feel fulfilled and important. But at the same time, there are so many different ways uh, for us to spend time. So there's so many activities out there that, you know, can seem productive. Um, and there's stuff, as we said, that is seems less productive, like social media and TV and video games. And all of these different activities are, you know, th- they're really competing for our time at, at the same time. So what are some good ways for us to make those appropriate choices? If you don't mind, I think it is, uh, I will share the analogy of the time jar because I think it is so helpful in terms of prioritization. Um, And so in the first day of class, and when I'm referring to class, this is the course that I developed and teach among uh, our Anderson MBAs um, is called Applying the Science of Life, of Happiness to Life Design. So it is pulling the research, both my own as well as that of my um, colleagues, so that uh, my students can apply those insights to make their day-to-days happier, as well as designing their lives, both professional and uh, personal lives, um, such that it is aligned with their values and purpose, so ultimately feel more fulfilling. Now, in in the first day of class, I share I show this short film, um, and it is of a professor walking into class, and on the desk he puts down a large clear jar, and then he pulls from his bag <laughs> and puts in the jar a bunch of golf balls. The golf balls raise all the way up to the sort of top of the jar, and he asks the students, "Is the jar full?" And they're like, yes. And he's like, ha And then from the bag, he pulls pebbles and he pours the pebbles into the jar. And those pebbles fill, um, you know, in between the crevices and the spaces between the golf balls um, up to the top of the jar. And he asks the students, is the jar full? And they're like, yes. <laughs> he's like, uh And so from the bag, he, he has, you know, some sand that he then pours into the jar and the sand fills the spaces in between the golf balls and between the pebbles up to the top of the jar. And he's like, is the jar full? And everyone's laughing at this point. Like, like yes. Um, and then he pulls from the bag two bottles of beer and he opens one, pours it into the jar, and then he opens the other and sort of goes and sits on the front of the desk, takes a sip. And he's like, all right, guys, what this jar is, is the time of your life. There is only so much space. Those golf balls are all the things that are really important to you. Those are the relationships that are meaningful. Those are that sort of work that you do that is really fulfilling. Um, You know, it's for us, as I had you guys, you know, reflect on your previous week, what were those moments of joy? Those are your golf balls. 
the pebbles are, you know, the other things that you sort of need to do and um, are sort of part of your life. The sand is everything else. The sand is all that stuff that sort of fills your time without you thinking about it. And he points out, if I had put the sand in first, this amount of sand, then the golf balls wouldn't all fit, right? Um, And that is the point. If we let the sand fill our time, then there won't be enough time or space for all of those golf balls. And then one of the students asked, like, well, professor, you know, what what are the beers? What do those represent? And he was like, no matter how busy you are and how little time you feel like you have, you always have time for a beer with a friend. And so that is also to say that we prioritize the stuff that is really important to us. But then there are these other things that are truly important that come up that we must put, like the non-sand. And this is a really helpful analogy because it shows us just how important it is to prioritize our golf balls, to put it in first, because if the sand, and the sand are those things that, you know, Gaurav, you were sort of concerned about this, like maybe this would make you feel stressed out. If you do recognize in your time tracking that a lot of it is sand, that is something that's helpful and informative. You're like, okay, I need to sort of clear some of that sand away in my coming weeks and actually put those golf balls in first. And then sure, there there might be time for sand in between. There, you know, like you might, you know, want to scroll social media, but it's not replacing time from the stuff that really matters. It is indeed just sort of filling around the edges and that's fine. So I don't even know if I, that answered. No, <laughs> sure. but... um, I love the story as well. Um, I think what's really interesting here is this idea again of the stories we're telling ourselves and the stories we're consuming, how important that is on our relativity and, um, on our perception of time, because I think you talked about the book and you mentioned earlier about how telling ourselves the story we don't have enough time leads to us having more, uh, less time, leads us being more anxious, leads to all these things. And so a big part of it is the stories we're telling ourselves about, oh, we do have control over time. Oh, we can do this. Oh, by taking these steps, we can see uh, what's important to us. And I think on the other side, where you were talking about social media in a sense as well, is the stories we consume. I think... Uh, one of those, one of the issues is, uh, especially with kind of like self-help Instagram, where we are constantly bombarded by all the things we can be doing, and everyone has ten tips on how to live a happier life, and every single one requires you to get up in the morning, do yoga, go for a run, journal, meditate. <laughs> um, after eight hours of sleep, make sure you wake up by five, uh, stretch, work out. Like it has like twenty thousand different things we're supposed to be doing in the mornings, and I yeah. think because we consume all these stories, we're always kind of feeling inadequate because we're not doing those two or three things. But what you were talking about there is being kind to ourselves, being gentle to ourselves, talking to ourselves in a way where it's like, well, some of this stuff works for other people, but you are unique and you find happiness in individual things. Yeah. And it's not just talking to yourself. It's really listening to yourself and observing yourself. Like that's that first step of the data collection, right? Or the reflecting back and identifying moments of joy that it's, for you, you know, what are those ways of spending time that are most worthwhile? And as I mentioned, you know, in my course, at the end of the course, I ask the students, what is the exercise that was most impactful to you? What's interesting is that 
every single one of the 12 exercises was mentioned by at least a couple people as most impactful for them. Now, what that means is that there is variation on which of these strategies is going to be relevant for you. And so, you know, I love the way you sort of framed out if you like applied all the tips and tricks that, you know, self-help gurus are giving you, like that (laughs) not all of them are going to be relevant for everyone. And, you know, there are so many hours of the day. Um, And so I think that it is helpful and I lay out all the exercises and I think that it's helpful for, at least for my students, I require them to do them so that they can experience for themselves. What is the effect of exercising? What is the effect of getting enough sleep? And maybe the effects of those aren't quite as impactful as writing a gratitude letter or, uh, you know, spending and crafting a moment of joy uh, in your coming weeks. So not to say that the exercise is a bad tip. It's just saying that maybe for a particular individual, that might not be one of those things to prioritize, whereas others are. For me, actually, my morning run is worth prioritizing. And it is one of those things, you know, in terms of what we tell ourselves. I so often I'm like, I don't have time for this. So I don't make the time for it. But when I do make the time for it, and research can explain why, I actually feel like I have more time. So there are these ways of spending time that actually, by increasing our sense of self-efficacy, increasing our sense of accomplishment, like we're like, oh my gosh, I I did that and I accomplished it. If I could like do that with the time I have and I feel really great about it, like it expands your sense of what you sort of set out to do. It feel you feel less limited, less anxious, less constrained, um, and giving you that sense of agency that is really wonderful. And so. In, uh, I actually have a research project where we find that giving time, some time to people make you feel like you have more time. And that is counterintuitive at the face of it, because when we feel rushed, when we feel time poor, as I mentioned, we are really stingy with our time. We're less likely to take the time to help others um, out. But we ran an experiment where we showed that actually when people spent 30 minutes of their day doing something for someone else that they weren't already planning to do versus 30 minutes that day doing something for themselves that they weren't already planning to do. And then we connected with them at the end of the day and asked, uh, measured their sense of time affluence. So how much time they feel like they have. Those who spent giving their time felt like they had more time. And that's really interesting. Um, And it was driven by self-efficacy because they're like, oh my gosh, like I spend that time, I made an impact with that amount of time. I accomplished something for this other person that makes you feel really good. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, here I come world. I will, I can do all these wonderful things. And so it's interesting that in fact, spending time in ways that are worthwhile for you can make you feel less time constrained. They can make you feel like you have more time. Um, and so this, again, going back to your wonder, your guys' wonderful theme of storytelling, 
um, our time poverty is perceptual. It's stories that we tell ourselves of like, I don't have time to do what I want to and, you know, should do. Both pieces of that is a story that of what you want to and should do. And that I don't have time, that's also a story. You can spend the time on ways that are worthwhile and you, in fact, do have the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, talking a little bit about this idea of running, which you start the book open and you brought up before, um, I've run. Uh, that was something I was doing for pretty consistently. And uh, I've never experienced this run as high people talk about. I don't know what that means. I don't think it exists. I think it's a, a fallacy. <laughs> we're being lied to by big runners or i think it's it's nike's way it's nike's way of selling shoes let's be honest corporate overlords anyways i got distracted um but one of the things i was doing was uh one of the big one of the big drivers of the these this internal storytelling aspect and this idea that we uh have so much control about how we perceive the world for me it comes from my mindfulness my meditation practices and ideals and when i was running um i started running because uh, this kind of mindfulness aspect of running and how people talk about its its connection, its mind-body connection and all that fun stuff. And I was taking Andy Puttacombe's um, and Nike, yes, Nike, Nike and Headspace's uh, uh, mindful meditation course and, sorry, mindful running meditation course. And something that uh, Andy Puttacombe talked about was when you get up to run and your entire body is telling you not to, um, you tell yourself, that's just a thought. Right, it's this idea of thoughts not controlling us, ideas of thoughts coming in and just kind of passing, right? And watching them and understanding that we give them the power that we choose. So I know you talk a little bit about it in the book, but I'd love to hear uh, your perspective on the connection between mindfulness and um, seeing thoughts and time. Yeah, um, and that's... Uh wonderful that you're doing that course and that sounds great i'm like dude that sounds good it's like putting running with meditation because i have difficulty meditating otherwise um but mindfulness is very important and um i talk about it in the book in a few ways um one is actually the downside of distraction so of mind wandering um, and so often are we distracted away from what we're currently doing that we are not mindful of our current experience, of our current situation, of our current activity, like, you know, like what we're even doing. Um, and there's uh, nice uh, research to show that. So researchers um, uh, pinging people over the course of their day and asking, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? And how are you feeling? And these researchers had millions of instances that they could analyze. Um, and what they found that was almost half of the time, we are distracted. We are not paying attention to what we're currently doing. And that is across all the activities, like, you know, across the actual activities that we're doing, you know, like, like running, but also like, you know, we're meant to be doing work or we're taking care of our kids, that our minds are somewhere else. And as I mentioned, they also asked, how are you feeling? And what they found was that people were less happy when they were distracted. Um, they were less happy, again, sort of irrespective of the particular activity they were doing and even like what they were thinking about. Um, they were happier when they were focusing on what they were currently doing. And that is where the mindfulness comes into play. And so 
meditation is a way to practice paying attention to your current experience, your current environment. And this is a really important tool given anxiety um, and the increase in anxiety we've seen in the country over the the past uh, couple of years and across the world. And what anxiety is, is this sort of fear of what's to come. It's this uncertainty about what's in front of you. Um, and basically, it's your mind wandering to the future and the uncertainty of that future. Um, what meditation does is, again, this practice of drawing your attention to the present moment. And in that practice, then hopefully you can apply it throughout your other activities. Um, so this is sort of like combating distraction that can reduce anxiety. But I also want to talk about just the importance of paying attention to what you're currently doing, in particular, when you are spending time on those golf balls, on those moments of joy. Um, So hedonic adaptation, we get used to things over time. Um, After repeated exposure, those things stop having as strong or an intense of a reaction or an effect on our emotions. This is really good that we're so adaptable when bad stuff happens because it makes us resilient. It makes us able to sort of be tolerant of uh, negative circumstances. But it's bad that we also adapt to life's joys um, such that, uh, you know, doing them repeatedly, they stop having as positive of an effect. We stop paying attention. We stop noticing Um, And so the extent to which you can continue to pay attention to those joyful opportunities um, and are mindful during them, that is, you know, like talking about golf balls, I'll share it. Like one of my main golf balls or when it like reflecting back on my week, it is my weekly coffee date with my daughter. Um, she is seven years old. We've been doing this now for several years. Um, it started as a routine of after dropping off her big brother, my son, at the carpool at school. Then her preschool was right next to me, my office on campus. So, But on the way, we would drop off the big kids. I would needed a cup of coffee. We'd stop at the coffee shop. And that routine, we turned into a ritual and is this special time 30 minutes each week where it was the two of us sort of delighting in each other's company, her drinking her hot chocolate, me with my, you know, flat white and croissants. And it was, it's just lovely. And recognizing that even though it happens every week, it won't continue happening every week. There is, uh, at some point she's on, you know, She's going to want to go to the coffee shop with her friends and not me. At some point, she's going to go off to college. At some point, she's going to probably move to New York. And then it will just be visits and, you know, can we carve out time for coffee? Recognizing that these sort of things that bring us joy aren't going to be available to us in the same frequency or maybe even at all in the future. What that does is it draws our attention to it. A, it makes me make sure that I spend that time. I don't schedule meetings for that time. And I put my phone away 
no distractions because that is precious time and I am in it. I quiet my thoughts of all the other things that I have to do because those are my delightful 30 minutes that I get to have with my daughter and by being totally mindful during it and treasuring it and actually anticipating it each week. So, and remembering it, like those 30 minutes have a bigger impact on my overall happiness and satisfaction than you might think if we were thinking just about the amount of time, you know, I get to spend with my daughter. So, you know, touching back on one of the previous themes, it's not about how much time you spend on these things. It's about the quality of that time. And as we're talking about your mindfulness during that time, given that you're spending the time, you don't want to miss out on the potential happiness that's right there. So pay attention, soak it up, savor it, treasure it. Um, And that has a really big impact on our overall satisfaction um, with how we're feeling in our life. Yeah, I love that. Uh, very important point about being in the moment. Um, and also very quickly, I, I thought it'd be very great if we can get just a bit into not only being in the moment, but also, you know, remembering the moments, because that's something you touch upon in your book as well. And I, I thought it was really insightful, too, as I was reading it is, you know, a lot of times we have very fond memories of things we've done in the past. Like, for example, back when I was still a student, I would, you know, network with people who are more experienced and have spent a lot of years in their professional careers. Um, and, you know, they, they will always share their fond memories of their time in school. Meanwhile, I was, you know, there with my four midterms complete in a week. And I'll be like, sure, you, you love that. Um, what do we remember? You know, what are the things we remember? about the things we've done? Or what does that tell us about our happiness? Yeah, and that's a great question. And again, is so um, tightly linked to your guys's um, theme of storytelling of the stories that we tell ourselves um, from our prior experiences. So what we remember from our experiences are the peak moments and the end moments. And so this has been identified by folks like Danny Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning uh, behavioral economist, as well as um, others. And what they were interested in is like over the course of an event, so say like a vacation, is it that our memory of it is a sort of sum or average of how we're feeling moment to moment, you know, sort of like the time tracking? And the answer is no. (laughs) How people um, sort of how they evaluate, remembered their vacation wasn't the sum of all the experiences and how they felt. It was the peak moments, as I said, the most intense, either positive or negative, actually, and the final moments. This is helpful for us to know because it means that we can craft the story. We can craft our memories if we make the best moments peaks. And sometimes those moments will be those sort of ordinary or seemingly ordinary moments. Like, you know, if I look look across my last year, um, a peak moment, I will say, is a Thursday morning coffee date with my daughter. That is something that's very regular, but because I'm drawing my attention to it, pulling it out as sort of like a peak 
instrumental part of my story, my memory, that's what color is my overall assessment of how satisfied I am. Also, it makes us be very thoughtful of how we sort of craft for the sort of phases of, or, you know, like for experiences, like for a vacation, going back to this vacation example, Mm -hmm. noting that also the end is very impactful, making sure that the last day of vacation is really fun. And also in terms of storytelling, ending your vacation before that whole journey home where you're like dealing with flights and stuff. So like your story of what your vacation was ends on that, you know, final, like wonderful dinner, uh, you know, the last night and making sure that that last night dinner is like really fun. Um, So it's helpful to understand what we remember, the peaks and the end, so that we can craft our story, draw our attention to the pieces of the hours that we spend that are the happiest, so that our memory of that time is sort of as happy as possible. Yeah, peaks and end, very important parts to our story that, you know, it's up to us to design uh, what that is. Close out this episode with a segment called Suspenders. It works like this. We ask you a fun, random question that's unrelated to anything whatsoever, and you can give us any answer you feel like. Exciting slash nerve-wracking. <laughs> Go for it. Yes. <laughs> question of the day is, what's the hardest job? I'm going to caveat this real quick. Let's not include any jobs that uh, l- people lose their lives in, so not first responders or... Uh, veterans or things like that. Let's let's do jobs where people walk out alive. <laughs> oh my gosh, the hardest job is, according to my son, being a third grader. <laughs> he, he'd say he's like, I don't understand why we're doing any of it. None of it matters. Like he has no sense that it's going to contribute to his future in a positive way. And I'm like, yes, you do have to practice typing because <laughs> typing is useful. So that's my answer. However, when by the time he's our age, they're probably not going to be typing anymore. It's all virtual assistants. I so. know. <laughs> don't tell him that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Well, this was amazing. Really, really appreciate your time. Happier hour, how to beat distraction, expand your time and focus on what matters. On sale September 6th. Uh, we highly recommend it to anyone who you know is alive Um, it's a great book Uh, we loved it we really appreciate your time thank you for sharing your insights and yeah it was amazing thank you guys so much it was a treat welcome back to Top Hat this is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the amazing key insights we got from this week's expert storyteller. And this week we had the amazing Dr. Cassie Holmes, who is a professor at UCLA Anderson School of Management, one of the top uh, business schools in the world. You know, Kev, I, I, I think I know someone who went there. I yeah. wonder who that might be. I wonder who that might be. Kevin went there, if that was unclear. <laughs> Um, Kev, what a what an interesting guest. Um, I think, oh yeah. You know, I struggle with time in a lot of different ways, and what I love about her book and love about her writing is that 
she builds her structures, her exercises about finding time and doing things that make you the most happy without neglecting our duties. Honestly, it was one of those episodes where like we could have recorded for eight, 10, 15 hours and not even gotten through all the questions we had because she was just such a wealth of knowledge and this book was so amazing. Oh yeah. Um, I love this idea of this connection of time, happiness, and storytelling. Um, I think it, it ties very directly into this idea that I practice a lot and look into a lot of mindfulness and being present in the moment and realizing what's making you happier or filling you up in the moment, which will allow you to live a more happier life and do better and work harder in the things you have to do. Especially with the world we live in today, the amount of information, entertainment, and technology that we have access to. We have so much going on around us that we are intrigued by everything all of the time. And our own time is inevitably limited. So it's important for us to figure out what are the things we do uh, dedicate our time and energy on versus what we don't. And you know, it's so, so much to do with storytelling because it's the stories we tell ourselves about the ways we use time. And what's great about her is like us, she's very data oriented. She's a very uh, quantitative thinker. So she lays out interesting ways to get more data so we can make better decisions and tell ourselves better stories about our time. All these exercises about gaining more data about what actually makes us happy so that we can tell ourselves, oh, you know what? I thought it was six hours in effort, but really it's only one hour in effort, two hours of going for runs and one hour of um, reading. That's what actually makes me happy. Um, that's what's going to fulfill me more. So it's about gaining more data, gaining a better understanding and using that understanding to tell ourselves better stories about how we use our time. And if we can tell ourselves better stories about how we use our time, we can be happier and use our time in a way that makes us more fulfilling. And as Cassie tells us about, of all the things that we can be doing, it's important to focus on the things that are of importance to us instead of just focusing on uh, what's urgent and getting those crucial stuff done, getting those golf balls placed in a jar early and build your time around those things. That's ultimately going to help you maximize your productive time if that's what you're going for and also make you feel happier because you're prioritizing um, fulfilling your purpose. Ultimately, it's the stories we tell ourselves. It's the stories we tell ourselves about what's gonna make us happy. And a lot of this is just about being kinder to ourselves, understanding that, sure, I could spend this next hour writing the great American novel, or I can spend this next hour talking to a friend. And talking to a friend may be what I need in that moment. It may be filling me up so that when I do something that's more important or something that needs my time, or when I go back to making that novel, I am more fulfilled and I am happier and I'm in a place where I could do better. So ultimately, a lot of this is about just being kinder to ourselves. And unless, what is everyone else doing? Why are they more productive? Why are they more successful? How can I model my time after them to get there? Because that's exhausting. And ultimately, we can't. Build your own story. And remember, you don't have to copy anyone else's. Thank you, Philosopher Kevin. 
This has been another amazing episode of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie. Make sure to follow us on at Instagram at LSPT Pod or find us on LinkedIn. Leave us a review. Leave us a comment uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps people find the show. It really helps us understand what you're looking for and helps us develop a show so that we can all become better storytellers. I'm Gorv. And I'm Kevin. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.